You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. for coming. Um, I want to thank all my panelists, who I'll briefly introduce to their information is available on the materials, but from my far right, uh, Damien Levy is the head of the trade section of the delegation of the European Union to the United States. Um, uh, Adam Schlosser is the director for the Center for Global Regulatory Cooperation International at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Gail Slater is the vice president of legal and regulatory policy at the Internet Association. And Amy Stepanovich is the U.S. Policy Manager at Access. I want to thank them all for coming. And first, let's talk about what are we talking about here today, right? We're, we're talking about boats. We're talking about all sorts of sinking. Like, that doesn't sound very good. Uh, I'm going to do a little stage setting, and then I'm going to ask my panelists to tell me uh, what, whether or not I'm right and where we're going in the future. So the, the safe harbor decision that was decided by the European Court of Justice on October 6, 2000. 15 actually has its origins 20 years earlier. In 1995, the European Union passed a, a data protection directive, which has rules and regulations and general standards by which EU member states have to adhere to uh, uh, data protection or privacy regulation. There's a prohibition in the directive about allowing the cross-border transfer of personal data, which is very broadly defined and it pretty much is all uh, uh, electronic information. Um, you cannot have cross-border transfer unless the country to whom you're transferring the information has adequate privacy protections, or alternatively, there's some other sorts of protections. The United States has a sectoral approach to privacy and is not considered to be adequate under the European regime. It wasn't in 1995, and to this day, it, it, it is still not considered to have an adequate privacy regime such that wholesale data transfer of personal data can take place. So what's a U.S. company to do? Um, from 1990, not, 1998 to 2000, the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce negotiated with the European Commission and created something called the U.S.-EU Safe Harbor. The U.S.-EU Safe Harbor is a, uh, a regime, and it basically follows the EU standards, the EU privacy principles. And if companies go and make a public proclamation, I, company, adhere to the U.S.-EU Safe Harbor, they're listening 
So the court looks at the safe harbor decision of 2000, Article 1 and then Article 3, and checks whether it considers that the Commission decision remains valid under the law, given the fact, given what, uh, what has appeared since then, but also from day one, it looks at how um, the safe harbor arrangement is constructed. It's not a commitment by the United States government. It's a system of self-certification by, by American companies. And the court says, well, that's okay. Uh, it's better that the laws protect the, the data of private or individuals, but still it's okay. And then it looks at how it's enforced, how it's organized and enforced, and comes to the conclusion, I don't need to go into the details now, that basically it's not sufficient protection. And therefore, the rights of the citizens Mr. Schaps in particular are not sufficiently protected, and therefore the commission decision is invalid. I mean, I'm not doing a very short summary. And so, therefore, not only um, the, the answer to the Irish court is yes, you have to tell the Irish data protection authority that you need to investigate this case between Mr. Schaps and Facebook, but also it's, it's ruling area on this, and this is ruling is binding for, the, for, for everybody with. So the decision uh, that the safe harbor is, is not valid. Um, Amy, I have a question for you. Do you think that this is a decision that's related to surveillance and the unauthorized disclosures of 2013, or is it related to a commercial data privacy uh, uh, decision? Thank you, Mary Ellen. Um, so I think at its heart, we have to say this is a this is a surveillance decision. The impetus for the entire case are the 2013 revelations by Edward Snowden in the Washington Post and the Guardian about um, surveillance conducted specifically under Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act, um, and more specifically, a program called PRISM. Um, so that was, these revelations were what really motivated Metrums to take this case, to ask for an investigation, to ask for um, the Irish National Authority to look into Safe Harbor. So everything that has flowed, that has come out of that initial decision has come out because of surveillance. And the European Court of Justice's opinion really spends a lot of time looking at surveillance and looking at what the U.S. allows and what standards the U.S. uses in order to judge um, what surveillance is necessary. So the rest of the world um, really uses international human rights standards to guide their surveillance programs. They said that surveillance is only appropriate if it is necessary and if it is proportionate. And that's the standard that the EU uses. It's a standard um, under the ICCPR. It's the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, uh, which is a treaty that the U.S. is a party to. And it's the standard, actually, that was kind of incorporated 
separated into safe harbor. You are, there's a huge exception for national security in safe harbor. You can, you know, not comply with safe harbor protections for purposes of national security, but only if the surveillance conducted in the name of national security or law enforcement or public safety is necessary. And so the U.S. really, what the, the Court of Justice found is that the U.S. practices are not necessary and they do not ensure this very high level of protection that protection is adequate for European data. Now, all of that said, the, the but is coming. Um, it's a surveillance decision, but Safe Harbor is about commercial data practices. It is primarily a commercial data mechanism. And if you read through the Court of Justice's decision, they actually spend a fair amount of time talking about the inadequacies of Safe Harbor, about the fact that it's a self-certified mechanism so that there's no independent audits that say if an entity is complying, that there's not enough transparency, that there's not enough accountability. And so while it is a surveillance decision, you have to look at the entirety of the decision and realize that anything that flows out of it also has to meet kind of these deficiencies that the court is identifying, deficiencies that the court is identifying in the safe harbor mechanism, also from a commercial perspective. So you really have to kind of dual consider what do we need to do from a surveillance perspective to make sure that the United States law and practice is in line with international standards that the EU thinks it should be in line with, and also what do we have to do from a commercial privacy perspective to make sure that the new, whatever new mechanism comes in, uh, and we will certainly talk about new mechanisms in a bit, um, actually complies with what the Court of Justice thinks it should comply with. Because now that the Court of Justice has said that national authorities have a ability to review decisions from the European Commission, we can expect that any new mechanism can also go up to the Court of Justice, and they're going to be able to look over this mechanism again. And so you don't want another period of indecision following this where an inadequate mechanism can get struck down a couple years from now. Adam, I'm going to ask you the same question, which is, is this a surveillance decision or a commercial privacy decision? And, you know, regardless of the answer, if you can let um, our audience know why transporter fl data flows are so important and what are, what's the impact of this decision. Sure. Well, well first, I'd like to add a point of clarification about the actual ruling by the Court of Justice. So, in the ruling, there was no examination of the commercial practices. It was an examination of the national security side, and it wasn't even based on an investigation. It was based on allegations and PowerPoints and Guardian articles. So it would be very helpful moving forward if the European Court of Justice, if the data protection authorities could conduct a thorough investigation examining the changes to the United States law made since 2013. Uh, the discussion in the ruling was based on practices as understood when Safe Harbor was created. And that also brings to the point that the ruling is a process ruling. So the decision is based on the fact that when Safe Harbor was agreed upon, the commission, according to the court, did a thorough investigation of the national security side, of how the exception of Safe Harbor would be used by the United States and what our practices were in the year 2000 when it was agreed upon. So while Safe Harbor was invalidated on process grounds, there is no examination yet on the commercial side. And in fact, the United States, Department of Commerce, FTC, and the Commission have been undergoing a, uh, a review and an enhancement of Safe Harbor for the past two years. So there are some changes in place. There was a report that was put out by the Commission two years ago, and both sides of the Atlantic were working very hard to satisfy the Commission's report in, in that report. Uh, to your question, whether this was surveillance or commercial decision, it was a surveillance decision. So I think that hopefully. Um, answers that. The other piece is on the commercial side, 
the United States is a really strong system of enforcement. If you do, if you violate your self-certification, the FTC will carry out an enforcement action. We have 20 consent decrees. There's nothing like that anywhere else in the world. And the European Commission, when they conduct adequacy determinations, often do not take the enforcement side into account. So while in the United States our commercial privacy practices aren't exactly in line with the European rules on paper, in words, in many areas, we go above and beyond what the Europeans do. In fact, some of the other governments that are deemed adequate include Argentina. And I'm sure they have a robust system of enforcement in their own way, but I'm willing to bet in the United States we have stronger privacy practices in actual reality how it works, in practice, not just on paper. Uh, I'll get into your, your second question about why is this whole issue important? Why are we here? Why do we care? So data flows are not just social media. It's not just spam and advertising. It's the backbone of a global economy and a transatlantic economy. At the U.S. Chamber, we represent the interests of over 3 million companies in every single sector, every single size. Energy companies, manufacturing, consumer goods, hospitality, plus the Internet technology side. Every company you can think of relies on the Internet today. And if you're a global company, you need to be able to transfer data. So in the business-to-consumer area, something very tangible, very easy is credit cards. You travel around the world, you go to Europe, or a European goes here in the United States, they could use their credit card. Data is transferred back to their back to their bank that says, yes, you have money in your account. It goes to other companies that verify that, yes, you're you. This is fraud, and the purchase is satisfied within mere seconds. Uh, on the business-to-business side, it's any multinational company that might have employees around the world. It's transferring that employee data Globally, is keeping track of a global customer base. It's a for an airline, an airplane manufacturing business, is having data on their engines while the plane is in the sky, being able to troubleshoot and fix problems on the fly, literally. So there's a variety of uses for cross-border data flows, and there's just an unlimited amount of reasons why it is essential to the global economy. Thank you very much. And we're going to get back to how the safe harbor decision is impacting companies um, a little bit later in the program. But first, um, Adam raised the question, Amy, about whether or not the decision accurately des- described that the U.S. surveillance and national security procedures, um, both in 2000, 2013, and today. Could you uh, tell us a little bit what your, your opinion is? Sure. Um, so there, there have been significant changes made in U.S. surveillance practices since 2013. And I think you have to start with recognizing that. Um, Earlier this year, we passed the USA Freedom Act, um, which Axis and most of the other groups that we work with um, were in support of. We think that that was a tremendous step forward. It's actually the biggest restriction placed on the NSA and surveillance since the 1970s. So it was a huge win. Um, One of the things that didn't really speak to is Section 702 and other sections of the FISA Amendments Act, which is, as I started out saying, what this case was filed under. So it has small steps forward on transparency in regard to the surveillance authorities, but it doesn't really change any of the practices or have any real substantive um, modifications of those surveillance authorities. So big win, but doesn't touch um, what we're talking about in this case. Um, the, case does the, the question was, does the case accurately describe surveillance? Um, so actually, the European Court of Justice decision um, didn't only mention PRISM once, but what they do mention is this, like, discriminate type of surveillance that is happening um, in the U.S. And so from a perspective that 
you're not looking at a specific program, you're looking at 702, you're looking at Executive Order 12333, yes, that is happening. Um, would I say that it was exactly technically proper in regards to Section 702? There were some inaccuracies um, as regard to how surveillance is being conducted, but the overall general programs that they are describing in the court order um, can happen, are happening, and it's because the U.S. doesn't recognize any rights for people outside of the United States. And so this indiscriminate surveillance that they really key into absolutely is going on. Um, I may take a, a little bit of a, a moderator's uh, liberties here, which is uh, the, the points that Amy's are making is Executive Order 12333, collectively called 12333, um, makes a distinction between domestic um, intelligence and foreign intelligence. And that distinction is that there are um, different types of more robust types of um, intelligence gathering activities that can take place outside the United States as well as against uh, foreign uh, citizens. And so uh, the Section 702 that Amy is talking about from the FISA Amendments Act uh, has that be within it, and Section 702 does talk about uh, foreign residence uh, controls, the, uh, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board did a report on 702 as to the President's review group. So I point you to those for more detailed discussions of 702. Um, Gail, I want to ask you a question, which is, um, the, you know, uh, David did a great job of summarizing the decision and what, what it was talking about. And as Amy pointed out, it talks a lot about, perhaps not wholly accurately, but in Amy's opinion, in broad strokes, consistent with U.S. surveillance activities. Uh, do you think the, that the uh, court should have looked at EU surveillance and national security issues as well as a comparison? Thank you. 
between the EU system and the US system. And so that was done back in the year 2000. And then the Schrems decision comes along, and the court says that because of mass surveillance in the US, as revealed by evidence developed in 2013, the safe harbor was no longer invalid because of this inadequacy. But you have to ask yourself, inadequate, inadequate compared to what? And so the comparison here, if we're looking both at surveillance and commercial privacy, has to be to EU surveillance. And so we also know from Edward Snowden, also in 2013, that many EU member state intelligence agencies were engaged in mass surveillance of their own citizens at that time. And in this case, pretty extensive. I think he did just turn over some of it to look back in. <laughs> he did. <laughs> so the list includes the Germans, the French, the Spanish, the Swedish, and the British intelligence agencies. Now, ironically, it did not include the Irish intelligence agency. I'm from Ireland, so I can tell you with all candor, I'm not even sure there is an Irish intelligence agency, but, but this is significant because this is, of course, where the case originated from, the Schrems case that went to the European Court of Justice. So, um, so what the Snowden revelations with regard to the EU member states said was that there was extensive mass surveillance going on, also in 2013, of internet traffic and phone traffic of EU citizens. Um, and so what the, uh, what the Guardian did was it uh, revealed documents, uh, particularly a document produced by GCHQ, which is the British intelligence agency, um, and it essentially was a scorecard across a number of dimensions of their sister intelligence agencies. Um, and just to give you some context here, in my experience, the British were never likely to give the French a confidence unless they really deserve it. And, and here's what GCHQ had to say about the French. They described the French agency as highly motivated, technically competent partner who have shown great willingness to engage on internet protocol issues and to work with GCHQ and cooperate and share with us. So, so that means that France is sharing surveillance information with England. Okay, just want to make sure I got that. Both internet and um, telephony data. So, um, so I think this is important. I think it's also important that the second snapshot I talked about, which is surveillance in this country, post-Snowden revelations, and the significant reforms that have been put in place since 2013, um, were not taken into account by the court. The United States to this adequacy finding. Um, and I think had the court taken into account both EU surveillance and U.S. reforms post-2013, and also the sort of market-based solution to surveillance, which is increased adoption of encryption technologies by Internet Association members, but also by other technology companies. And the, the delta, the inadequacy delta, we'll call it, between um, the U.S. and the EU systems, would I think have declined significantly. Would that have changed the court's opinion? I don't know the answer to that question. That's crystal ball gazing and crystal ball gazing. Um, but I do think it... Um, it's important to have this conversation because I think it's important in terms of finding a solution to this issue that governments see the reality on the ground um, in both regimes. And then the other snapshot, if I, if I might, that um, the court didn't take, which I believe would also be significant in, should be significant in these future conversations and negotiations around Safe Harbor 2, um, is the increased 
and robust commercial privacy enforcement by telecommunication in this country. And I think um, when Marianne, you will testify to this, but when you look back at the year 2000, the FTC was just really finding its legs in its privacy enforcement space. I think it's come on leaps and bounds since then. I think we can say with some confidence that it's probably the leading privacy enforcement agency in the world, and, and it has a track record that's very significant, um, and it's really something that's left out of uh, this trend of opinion. Sure, Adam, and then uh, Jamie wants to make a comment there after. So just to underline what, what Gail said, uh, it's the national security practices on the EU, their federal level, but also their member state level. So there's two pieces, and, the, and Dave will explain in more detail, I think, in a second, but the member states have the competency for national security and law enforcement largely in the European Union. So by saying we need to examine the European Union practices, it's their federal level, and also below that, that's really important. And one just quick example of how that works in practice, last year the Court of Justice reached a decision on a data retention case for a data retention directive. They said the, the rules written violate a fundamental right of privacy, much like the, the outcome of the safe harbor case. However, it was up to the it, it is up to the member states to implement that decision. So there was no required way or set way on how the decisions followed. So some states got rid of their retention rules. Some states, such as France, actually expanded it. So that's why it's really important to examine the practices as they stand today on the member state level. And, and just anecdotally, when we travel internationally, uh, there's several countries where we actually have to get special phones because of security concerns. One of them is France. So it's very interesting the state of play. Damien, turn to you next. Thank you. I think we are reading too much into the judgment. Um, I think we need to step back and understand what rules the Court of Justice has to follow in this procedure. It's a procedure in front of the National Court in Ireland, where the High Court has a doubt on the validity of EU law here, the safe harbor decision of 2000. And it's only answering a question from the High Court, and it's relying on the facts as uh, explained or uh, summarized in the High Court decision. Uh, I would note that no Americans took part in that judicial proceeding in, in Ireland. Facebook did not participate, nor anyone else. And so uh, that's the reason why the court in Luxembourg is relying on what it hears from uh, the, the High Court. And it does decide on, on other grounds. And I think fundamentally, it's about judges in Luxembourg seeing a an Austrian student who doesn't have a right of revenge. He wants to have a court listening to his case, basically, and saying, I think my rights are violated. And the decision of the Irish State Protection Authority was, in a way, denying that right. So I think it's, it's not more than that. So uh, we're going to talk about regress in a little bit, but I also I have a follow-up question based off of Gail's and Adam's comment, and it, this is for you, Damien. So, um, the, as you pointed out, the European Court of Justice decided that um, individual member state DPAs have the authority to investigate um, adequacy or, or whether or not there, there are sufficient uh, protections in each of these scenarios. Do those same member state data protection authorities have the oversight authority over member state surveillance and national security issues? As, as Adam pointed out, uh, national security is actually a member state competency or authority 
So I was wondering, do the DPAs have that authority in their own right, um, vis-a-vis their own member states? Depends. In some countries it's the case, in some countries it's not. Uh, but I have no doubt that after this judgment, all the DPAs will review and government authorities in general will review their own laws and practices to make sure they are con- complying with uh, the new judgment. And um, for the member states, and I think there are a handful of member states that do have authority, oversight authority, DPAs have authority over national security. Have there been any enforcement actions in those scenarios, do you know? I don't know. I don't, I, you need to check country by country. I cannot answer that. Okay. No, that's great. Thank you. So, um, uh, Adam, uh, Damien was saying that we're reading too much into the judgment. Um, I guess my question is, regardless of what we're reading into the judgment, what's happening on the ground? What are companies doing as a result of the judgment? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, from a policy standpoint, it's always fun to read the judgments and speculate and have sections like this. But the companies that we work with, they have a legal department, their compliance department. It's their job to make sure that their company follows the law. So, they have to read the judgment and read the tea leaves about what's happening around the rest of Europe and reaction to the judgment. So, the, the first order of business is to just do a, a data mapping exercise. What type of data do we have that's being transmitted? What were the safe harbor grades being used for? Because many companies, if they're a large multinational, they have hundreds of vendors. So an example is a hotel company. They have hotels in every single member state, often multiple ones. They have staff there. Uh, they have restaurant staff there. They have food that supplies the restaurant. They have reservation lists. So you're looking at hundreds of individual agreements for hundreds of different things within one company. So it's a very, very extensive and time-consuming process to figure out, okay, what are we using the Safe Harbor Program for now, and then what can we use as a substitute? Uh, Some of the suggestions are extremely complex and difficult. One suggestion was finding corporate rules that could take over a million dollars, up to 18 months. It was over 18 months prior to the decision when there was going to be now hundreds of companies seeking out approval for that. Another mechanism that had been accepted previously was something called model contract clauses. Uh, these are, are like it sounds, set clauses approved by the protection authorities that companies can use to prove that they're in compliance with the law. Uh, recently, there was one German state data protection authority that said, we may not think we can validate anymore. That's up to five now. Five German members, German state data protection authorities, so the equivalent of our United States have said that they're questioning whether any data transfer to the U.S. is sufficient in light of the decision from last week. And, and without a thorough investigation, yes, that's something that would be, be helpful and, and advice would have to do a decision whichever direction that we go in. So if you're a company and you're hearing this, what do, you, what do you do? You have customers that rely on you. You have employees that rely on you. They're, the decision isn't just about U.S. companies. It's about companies and consumers and end users in Europe, in the United States, and that is something important to consider as we, we move forward on this issue. Dale, how is this affecting um, transport or data flows right now? So, again, short, short answer to that question is, is we're still, we're still in Europe. It's, I think it's fair to say people, including yourself, are absorbing this opinion and kind of staying compliance as quickly as possible and steering in the safest and right direction. In many cases, that's the only DPAs. Um, and it also is time saves people are doing audits. 
Finally, the Article 29 Working Party uh, is meeting actually right now trying to figure out how to deal with this, what advice to give, are you going to have a de facto um, period of transition, are we going to have a gentleman's agreement, is another phrase I've heard about doing a transition, and as of the time we started this session, the Article 29 Working Party had not come out with guidance yet, but it may come out while we're here, and uh, so as uh, Gail said, that's the trade association for the data protection authorities.
And so when USA Freedom Act did pass earlier this year, many members of Congress thought that it was done with surveillance reform. Um, members of the civil society community were looking ahead to December 2017 when the Vice Amendment Act is set to sunset and saying, you're not going to be done, but we don't know if we can weasel in more surveillance reform until this sunset two years from now. Um, I think that we shouldn't wait those two years. We should be engaging substantively on the Vice Amendments Act right now. We should also be engaging substantively on Executive Order 12333 um, and trying to figure out what limitations and what protections we can put into place for that um, authority as well, trying to make sure, again, that we are complying with international standards that every other country that is the signatory to the ICCPR complies with. Um, in regards to necessity and proportionality of surveillance. Um, and then the final thing that we should be looking at is trying to, and again, I think there's some necessity in reading the tea leaves here about what the court was saying on um, the, the commercial aspect of safe harbor and looking toward potentially um, a comprehensive privacy law in the United States, something that many civil society groups have been pushing for for a very long time and trying to put into place protections so that the next time the Court of Justice revisits this opinion, they don't strike it down under the consumer protection um, elements as well. So Congress does have a huge role to play here, I think. I'm going to turn to Adam and Gail to see if they have any um, thoughts. Maybe I figure you don't want to give guidance to the U.S. Congress, so I'll give you a pass on that one. <laughs> but uh, Adam or Gail, have thoughts on um, how Congress can help this role, particularly given our audience today? So that 
it's a big base that probably is an association that supports that act. That's one thing that we can do to help answer the concerns of New Yorkians. Uh, but when it comes to any other changes in Congress, domestic reforms, there's things that we should do for Americans, for ourselves, not just for the Europeans. If it makes sense to look at a, a privacy bill that maybe simplifies the rules out there and has the right balance between innovation and privacy, that's something that we can do for Americans, not just for Europeans. So that, I think the immediate step to answer the court's case, the court's ruling, would be the Judicial Redress Act. Anything beyond that is, is for the United States, I think. And it should be our word for my European colleagues for abortion or whatever that might be. Great, thank you. So, um, both Gail and Adam have mentioned this Judicial Redress Act. And the Judicial Redress Act, as, as Gail pointed out, would provide um, that all citizens the right to uh, redress uh, in, in terms of the 1974 Privacy Act. The 1974 Privacy Act is very near and dear to my heart when I was at Homeland Security. I had to enforce it. Uh, and what it was, was it, it is about the government's collection and use of personal information. They have to say what you do, have a, a record retention policy, and have the ability to provide redress to U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents. So why is that? Why was that carved out? It's a question that my colleagues and I ask all the time, and it um, could be that we didn't have this transborder data flow that Gail and Adam have spoken so passionately about. It could be that uh, they didn't want to have redress rights for people who were asking for visas to come to the U.S. Could be a whole bunch of different things, and it could be that you know when you're thinking about filing cabinets, it's different when you think about the internet, the internet of things. So the Judicial Redress Act, uh, as proposed and as Gail said, is moving through the House, would uh, give redress rights to uh, European citizens and, and basically to foreign entities as long as they do have adequate protections. So, Damien, I got a question for you, which is, given that the Judicial Redress Act, Act, as Gail and I have described it, only addresses government collection and use of personal information, and even in the Privacy Act as currently constructed, there's an exception for national security. Does the Judicial Redress Act solve this problem? Well, I think we all agree that the current situation we're aware in is a situation of severe legal uncertainty. And the Judicial Redress Act would um, be a big step forward to reducing that legal uncertainty. And so, from a European perspective, we've been saying this for two years. Act helps solve this problem. 
absolutely support the Judicial Redress Act, but I, it's, a, it's an incremental step forward. And I want to be very clear, it's a, it's a small step forward. Um, it does give, and not necessarily EU citizens, uh, it gives certain countries who are certified um, by U.S. authorities, so those countries are not named, it's not necessarily countries in the EU or only countries in the EU, um, certain rights under the Privacy Act. But again, as, as Mary Ellen pointed out, there are huge exceptions to it. Um, and many of the programs that we're talking about here aren't going to be covered by judicial redress. And I would add that at least in the Senate, um, it has been proposed as an amendment to the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, which um, many civil society groups, both in the U.S. and abroad, have outright opposed because it creates huge new surveillance loopholes for more personal information to go to the government, which I think actually runs directly contrary to the opinion that we're looking at now. So attaching a law that gives a small incremental step forward in name of rights to a bill that actually um, takes a huge step backward is a net loss. Adam, I was wondering if you thought, you know, Jamie's been focusing on this redress issue. It is something I heard when I was talking to the Europeans when I was at Homeland Security. Is redress the, the panacea for these transborder data flows from your perspective in the, on the commercial side? So everyone says it's a step in the right direction, but at this point, it's not clear what a panacea would look like to the, the European side. Uh, again, it would be extremely helpful uh, if there was some sort of self-examination done to see what are the current rights, not just on paper, but in practice, in, at the European Union level, at the member state level, because the United States should provide, or should only, should only be asked to provide equivalent rights to those of the Europeans. We should be, we should be asked to go above and beyond what is actually the practice uh, on the ground over there. And, and just real quick, uh, on the, the Cyber Information Sharing Act, um, something that we support, we think it's very useful in helping deter bad actors. Uh, we don't see it as, or the act is not a loophole for more surveillance. It's a case where uh, businesses and other entities can share information and those who deter the bad actors aren't going to access more information look to these ends instead stop. So if there's uh, a breach of one area, uh, companies and those charged with creating security can work together to stop the same breach from happening again and again. Um, so I'm going to ask the panel to kind of look at their crystal ball, uh, do a little gazing, and talk about what's next for Safe Harbor itself. There's this Safe Harbor 2.0 that, as Adam said, is being negotiated between the Department of Commerce and the European Commission. Is that that on arrival? Is that have new life? What do we think is going to go on with that? And what about the U.S.-EU relationship? You know, kind of where are we where are we thinking we're going with this? And I'd ask you to think both short term, right? What's going to happen in the, as as we all kind of work out this this legal uncertainty? I think was Damien's phrase. And then secondly, kind of a, a medium term, what do we think uh, the relationship should trend towards? Uh, in the future, and I think I'll start with Amy closest to me, and then work work uh, down the line, please. So again, I don't know if any new mechanism is going to work in lieu of comprehensive surveillance reform. I just don't know if we can find a mechanism that complies with this court's opinion in lieu of changing the standard under which the United States conducts surveillance. And I absolutely agree with Gail. There's a problem with surveillance in the EU. There's a problem with surveillance around the world. There's just a problem with surveillance. Um, every country tries to give as much authority as they possibly can in order to conduct it. And we need to start looking seriously and holistically at all of these countries' practices and pulling it back. But right now, we need to look at the United States' practices because 
Access has supported the model, model, contract, model contract clauses that were mentioned earlier, um, but we call it Model Contract Clauses Plus because we think that they also need to include more robust mechanisms for transparency and for data security um, in order to protect against unauthorized access to data, um, such as what's happening, um, for example, when the NSA was tapping into the backbone between Google or Yahoo data centers. We think that's not necessarily a good thing for um, surveillance agencies to be doing, and so we think that data needs to be protected a little bit more robustly. So we're looking forward um, to engaging more thoroughly, at least in the short term, on that as a new mechanism, and then looking longer term at how to engage on protecting privacy from a very holistic point of view. Just a question, um, just to add, I think a point, the model contracts that is currently proposed by the Commission can't be edited. So I think Amy's comments about model contracts plus would have to get folded into any sort of revisions on the European Commission side. Um, and it is a pretty frustrating contract, if I can have a little discretion to say that. Uh, and it's very rigid uh, in terms of the, the opportunities. Gail, what do you think next for Safe Harbor and for this transatlantic relationship? Safe Harbor decision goes beyond just the one program. If we can't share information, if we can't carry on and, and monitor our investments, that is a gigantic loss, 
use that spell, Adam? <laughs> Big friendly discussion. So, it's really important that the governments of all sides of the Atlantic get together and work on finding a solution quickly. Uh, not delaying so there's so much uncertainty. We need to preserve the relationship going forward. Uh, and what we need is responsible governments having a conversation to build connections, not to tear them down. Senate Congressman may send a letter urging quick action. Uh, we see more in the Congress getting involved, talking to their counterparts on the other side of the Atlantic, just overall really encouraging a swift resolution uh, to the issue at hand. Great, thank you. And Damien, what, what do you think is next? Well, what's, what's next? I hope is the Judicial Redress Act is passed. And together, we're working on a new safe harbor uh, uh, arrangement. Um, taking into account kind of what the court has said, and nobody has an interest in having a new safe harbor 2.0 and it's tracked down a couple of months' time. So uh, we need to take deep breath and make sure that the new arrangement is as solid as we can. Great. With that said, we're at the top of the hour. I want to thank my panelists for an excellent discussion. I want to thank all of you. Thanks. Have a good night.